0: several times in the history of of this church, but I want you to listen very, very carefully to this. This is a word from the Lord. It may be for you. It may be for somebody that you know. It may be for someone watching online. I, I do not know. But this is a word from the Lord for someone going through a hardship or a trial here this morning, or joining us online, listen carefully. Thus saith the Lord, you are not alone. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that as I am yielded to your Holy Spirit, every once in a while you have a special word for somebody who has a special need. And I pray that it would minister, that you would envelop your needy sheep in your arms, that you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit and see them through what they face this day. And now and forevermore, we will thank you for your great love and tender mercies that remind us in the midst of the storm, we are not alone. We give you glory. We give you praise and honor, Father, in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is writing to a group of Christians early on in their faith walk. In fact, when Paul first came to them, they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They had heard what John's baptism was all about and that Jesus had in fact come, but that is all they knew. They did not have the Bible that you hold in your hands. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. They were taught in their synagogues and in the temple Old Testament scriptures, but it wasn't until Jesus came that people started hearkening to his words, and it wasn't until numbers of years after that that it was written down. So that by the close of the first century, there were several of Paul's writings and John's and, and Peter's that had, were just starting to make their way throughout the Roman world. What they needed to know was what God had promised His people, that's quoted for us in the New Testament, Hebrews 13:5, "He will never leave us nor forsake us. Never." leave you. You say, but Pastor Jim, sometimes when I go through the hard times, it doesn't feel like he's near. Put your feelings aside for just a moment. It is by faith that the just shall live, not by feelings. Don't let Satan use your feelings to undermine your faith. If we do not stand in our faith, One of the ancient prophets told one of Israel's kings, if we do not stand by faith in our faith, then we will not stand at all true of individuals, kings, and nations alike. We stand by faith in light of the promise of his presence. (sighs) Philippians tells us, do not be anxious about anything. You just want to pause there for a minute. Don't know what you tend to be anxious about, but you need to receive this as the Word of God that it is. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. When you do that, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How many of you need a little peace amidst the storms of life? Don't we all? And this is a promise that he means for us to hang on to by faith, not by feelings. really doesn't matter what you feel. Your feelings may be more dependent upon whether you had bad pizza last night than anything to do with your faith. You stand by faith, not by diet, not by feelings, not by circumstances. Though Satan will attempt to use all of those to get the best of us. You know, Paul in in Ephesians chapter 4, which is where we find ourselves this morning, he had just discussed unity and maturity as the twin goals of the church. Now he goes on to press home... Maybe a bit more personal application. Purity and holiness are also essential for those who belong to Him. Purity and holiness, these are not concepts that we read about, but we as Christians must practice, not give lip service to. All of us can quote a wide variety of scriptures. And sometimes when I tell people those scriptures, they say, well, Pastor Jim, I know that. A hint, never say that to a pastor. He's not bringing it to your attention because you don't know it. He's bringing it to your attention because you don't do it. There's a big difference. It's like buying a box at uh, a bicycle at Walmart and bringing it home and it says, Some Assembly Required. And that's the only thing it says in English. All the rest of it's in Chinese. And there are some very confusing pictures that follow. It says take about a half hour, put together four hours later. You're still wondering what in the world happened. Well, the Bible provides for us all the clear, crystal clear directions that we need. But when God says pursue holiness and purity, can I tell you, He means it. He means it. Things will change when we do things His way, it it is glorious. Now, what we've got here starting in verse 17, if you could skip down there, he's contrasting the old nature and the new nature. Uh, And these latter verses of this chapter will, will show us what the new nature looks like and how it should act. But can I ask you a question? Why do unbelievers act like unbelievers? Because they're unbelievers. Pagans act like pagans because they're pagans. Why should Christians act like Christians? Because we are Christians. Simple. I remember one of the most worthless classes I had in college was one on philosophy. Talk about a useless degree. I mean, that qualifies you to flip burgers at McDonald's with that degree. But there was, I remember, a form of reasoning that was called abductive reasoning reasoning. Let me give you an example, and I'll bet you, you have probably heard this before. If it looks like a duck, if it swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then it is probably a duck. That's abductive reasoning at its best. It simply implies that you can identify a person by observing their most consistent patterns of behavior. If it if they look like a Christian, they will act like a Christian. If they look like a pagan, that's probably bore out in their behaviors that are most consistently practiced. It doesn't mean that Christians can't mistakes. we all do. But Paul has just told us, we've got a new nature and an old nature, but you already knew that because you feel this internal struggle sometimes where you know what is right to do, but the pull of your flesh... It wants to do something different. You know what the Word of God says. But there's a pull of your flesh that says, yep, but I want this. We know that we're forbidden to be drunk for many different scriptures. And yet there may be times where people at work may try to pressure you into coming and having just a few drinks after work. There's all sorts of temptations out there. Before you became a Christian, let's talk about the old pagan days. How did you deal with temptation before you became a Christian? You gave into it. (laughs) There's there's no temptation. You just said, oh, I feel like doing this. I'm going to do this. And that's what you did. You were like a wild animal following its instincts. Dogs act like dogs because they are dogs. Dogs. I can't expect my dog, we do this all the time at my house. The dog wants to get up in the lap while we're, while we're watching TV or something. And, and my little female dog that I sold Kathy on adopting, uh, beca- I, I told her, I said, female dogs don't lick. <laughs> Boy, has our little pup proven me wrong. <laughs> she doesn't want to lick me, by the way. She just wants to lick Kathy. And she's got the coldest and wettest nose I think any dog on this planet ever had. She acts like a dog. I can tell her don't lick. But it doesn't seem to help. The tongue just seems to dart out uncontrollably. She's a dog. So I kind of have to anticipate she's going to act like a dog. God looks down from the heights of heaven and says, you're my children. I want you to act like you're my children. You're not of the world anymore. You used to do whatever came into your little pea brain. You lived according to the flesh. You did whatever you wanted to do. And I eventually brought you to the place where I showed you that lifestyle is ultimately self-destructive. You were thinking about suicide. You were thinking about throwing in the towel. You just thought to yourself, what is the point I've chased after the flesh and my happiness my whole life, and I've come up empty-handed. And it was at that point of greatest need that the Lord met us and said, I'm going to give you a new nature. I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit. I, he will instruct you in everything that I've said. Jesus relayed to his people. So now, we, while we had an old nature and things on one hand were fairly simple because it's the only nature you had, now you have a new nature. And so now you feel like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Some days you feel the pull of the Holy Spirit and you go, oh yeah, I love Jesus with all my heart. And then and there's this temptation to go sin. I know I shouldn't sin. I should, I should go. And you've, after a while you feel like there's two guys at the end of a, a rope and you're in the middle getting tugged this way and that way. Satan's on one end and God's on the other. Okay, stop. Satan is not God's equal. <laughs> God has no equal. If there's a tug-of-war contest going on, I can tell you who's going to win that one. It is God every time, every time at all. But it doesn't mean that you and I don't feel the weakness of our flesh. I still have an old nature. If you don't think you do, ask somebody close to you. Do I? I'm, I know I'm not a dog anymore. I used to be a goat, but now I'm a sheep. Oh, which more do I look like more? Do I look like the old goat that I was? Didn't Jesus say that someday in the future there's going to be a separation of the goats and the sheep? Sheep act like sheep because they are sheep. God is our shepherd. I love that term shepherd. That's why I love the term pastor. That's what it means. It means shepherd. In Latin, my job is to shepherd you, to love you, to encourage you, to explain God's Word to you to the level best of my ability to answer your questions. I know what I believe. I should always have a reason for believing the way I do, and I should be able to, as a pastor, articulate that to you. There are a few places of Scripture that require a little bit of illumination. The Holy Spirit will give that to you as you ask, but sometimes even after that, just to make us interdependent upon each other, you'll want to ask another mature Christian, what do they think? How do they see the Scripture? Can I tell you when it comes to interpreting Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture. You want to know all about love? Then start in Genesis. Look up every reference to love from there to the end of Revelation. You'll have a complete picture of this whole biblical concept of love. And you can look up any any topic or, or issue like that. So Paul is going to start leaning on the Christians, if you will, a little bit here in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. So I tell you this. And insist on it in the Lord. Do you see the strength of that language? He's not saying, you know, if you feel like it, you could do this. Or what do you think about, you know, trying to do this? He says, I'm telling you. And he carries apostolic, excuse me, authority like no one ever had. Second only to Peter, perhaps. But when he says, I insist on it in the Lord you know what he's really saying? Thus saith the Lord. This is God talking to you and me. He's using the human agency of Paul in this case, but understand who's really requiring this of you and I, and it is the Lord himself. Now, apparently, well, let's, let's finish that. So I tell you this, and insist on it, Lord, that you must no longer live like the Gentiles, the pagans do, in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And here's why they're ignorant, because of the hardening of their hearts. They don't want to get up their sin. They don't want to hear about God. Righteousness is not even in their vocabulary. Having lost all sensitivity, verse 19, they have have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. When Paul starts out his discussion here in verse 17, apparently the Ephesians to some degree had been living like the Gentiles do, the unsaved, insensitive to sin, indulging the flesh, and boy, that can take a lot of forms, compromise. Paul apparently saw that in, because you can't command that you stop something unless you've been doing it. Does that just make sense? So Paul says, you've been doing this, stop doing that. They had been unsaved. They had been darkened, separated from God, ignorant. Verse 18 tells us all these things. Their hard hearts made them insensitive to what God had for them. They were preoccupied with sensuality and impurity. But now as saved people, he's going to share with them, you walk in the light. Stay in the light. Don't go back into the darkness. You've been brought near by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have knowledge now of the Holy One. He has softened and and tendered your heart. He has made you now sensitive to his Holy Spirit. You listen for that still small voice that leads you and guides you in the decisions of life. He's beginning to plant the fruit of purity and holiness. And you exercise sexual self-control now. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 describes the sinful fallen man, and quite frankly, the world that we live in today. I just want you to make a note of that off to the side of verse 17, Romans 1, 18 to 32. But here's the problem. It is possible to be saved and not move into maturity as a Christian. Here's the problem. A Christian living in the flesh is always frustrated They are always feeling like his or her life is pointless, it's without meaning, it seems to be a futile exercise. And according to a Gallup poll, the greatest need of people going to church was the need to feel that life is meaningful and has a purpose. But you lose that when you drift away from your fidelity to Jesus Christ when you become more and more drawn back into the world that Christ died to save you from, you start wondering, what's the point of this? This doesn't feel as good as I thought it felt back in the good old days, and you find out the hard way they were not the good old days. We were not only futile in our thinking in the old days. Verse 18 says that there was... We were darkened in our understanding. We didn't have any spiritual insight. We were separated from God and the life that he offers. We were willfully ignorant. Ignorant means without knowledge of the facts. They didn't know Christ, didn't know anything about him, but they didn't want him messing up their sin life. That is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You know what that means? It's a Greek word that means that they had become morally unresponsive. Every time you turn on the worldly news in your house, you are seeing evidences of people that are morally unresponsive. They're like the walking dead. They're like the zombies out there. They steal and they rape and they pillage and they murder and they do drugs and dabble with all sorts of things and feel no moral compunction about it whatsoever. They don't esteem human life. They butcher people in crime they see as a way of life. But that's because of the unwillingness to listen to that moral conscience, that voice of moral conscience called the, the Holy Spirit who's trying to draw all flesh to Himself, but they've hardened their hearts against that. I will not listen because there's... They have desires they want to fulfill. It's a refusal to change. I just want you to be responsive to the Holy Spirit. When you do something or say something and you feel that twinge of conscience, that is the Holy Spirit lovingly and gently telling you, don't do that again. You need to change that pattern of behavior. You are not your own. You've been bought with the price, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Holy Spirit tickles that what you call conscience, understand that it is the person of the Holy Spirit trying to prompt in you this spirit of holiness. You're not of the world anymore. You may have been a goat, but now you're a sheep. Act like it. Are we responsive to the Holy Spirit or do we... Harden our heart against that. Boy, I sure don't want to do that. In verse 19, he says, having lost all sens- sensitivity, that is, to the Holy Spirit, they've given themselves over to sensuality. The old King James Version has lasciviousness. Well, it's hard to understand something you can't even spell. So I, I had no idea when I first got saved, what in the world is lasciviousness? it's a simple Greek word that just means the absence of restraint. There's no moral compass. You just do what you feel like doing. There's no moral restraint. There's nothing but indecency at work in you. In 2 Corinthians 12, it's listed as one of the sins in the carnal church at Corinth. They hadn't pushed on to maturity. They had chosen an arrested state of development. That's not healthy in human babies. It shouldn't be a common state in the church. In Galatians 5.19, this lasciviousness, this sensuality is listed as one of the deeds of the flesh, not the spirit. In Romans 13, believers are warned against it, and, and the persistent idea is shameless conduct. Your conduct should not be like a shameless pagan. You are not one. You've been born again. Don't be like a dog that returns to its vomit, is what Peter says in the first epistle that bears his name. Don't go back to that cesspool that Christ died to take you out of. Verse 20, you, however, boy, that's emphatic. You is really emphatic in the original language. In contrast to the unsaved, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of Him and were taught in Him according, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This whole idea of you take off some really dirty, moth-eaten garments that don't fit anymore, and you put on the new garments of righteousness that have been given you in Christ Jesus. You do that all the time in your home. Talk about a practical illustration. How many of you guys have outgrown your clothes from 20 years ago? Every hand in the room, uh uh-huh. What do you do with those things? They either become garage rags or you donate them to the Goodwill or you hand them off. But that's that's not you anymore. You're twice the man you used to be (laughs) for some of us more literally than others. Well, thank you, Bear. I appreciate that. God is good. I put on a pair of cowboy boots that I bought. Fifteen years ago, the other day, I got into them with the help of a shoehorn and a quart of Vaseline. I didn't know this. Did you know that when you put on weight, your feet get fat? That's of the devil. If there was anything of the devil ever, that's it. And I tried to get these boots on. I could not get them in. I actually bought some Ariat boot stretch. I sprayed the front. I sprayed the back. I sprayed the inside. I worked it with a baseball bat. I put some Walmart bags in the front and the back because they're supposed to be slippery. I tried to get my foot in there, and finally, it's on. Yeah. I couldn't get them off. I couldn't get them off. I thought, well, I can wear my elk cowboy boots to bed. I tried, and I, I pulled so hard, I hurt my knee. I was dislocating my knee, for crying out loud. So, so I asked Kathy, and Kathy said, well, come here. I'll, I'll pull that off. And she's got this trick where she uh, straddles my leg, and she pulls backwards. And she says, well, put your other boot on my butt and push. I just about put her in the hospital. <laughs> that boot wasn't going anywhere. So then my 6 foot, 3 inch, uh, 260 pound son said, "Your dad, won't you let me give that a try? And between that and a pry bar, he got the thing off. I learned my lesson. There's some things that you need to put off and keep off. My favorite Hawaiian shirt at the house is much the same. I put it on the other day, and Kathy said, you are not wearing that, are you? I said, I can almost get the buttons done. Maybe I could wear a T-shirt underneath. Put it off. Put it off. There's no good, and, you know, we can always say, well, I'm going to hang on to it because, you know, I'm planning on losing 10 pounds. (laughs) No, you're not. You may plan all you want to. Thanksgiving is coming, silly. Christmas after that. So save that kind of nonsensical talk for New Year's Eve, but you won't keep that one either. There's certain times that are appropriate that I take off the old stuff. It doesn't serve God's purpose in my life anymore. And I need to put on the new stuff that Christ has given me that not only fits, but blesses him, winds up equipping me to minister to others effectively. I'm not the guy I used to be. I am not the man I used to be. By the grace of God, I am who I am, but by the grace of God, I am not yet the man I am going to be. But that requires a commitment to personal maturity, doesn't it? Same for me and for you. It doesn't happen accidentally. You can wish that Hawaiian shirt fits you all you want to. It's not going to fit. There has to be an intentionality to put off the old garment, put on the new, press on to maturity spiritually. I can't do that for you. I only have you for one hour a week. If you come on Sunday morning and and that's it, there's 168 hours in the week. You've got to handle this yourself. Take upon yourself that mantle of responsibility to read the Word of God, to grow, because it will not happen through neglect. It cannot happen through neglect. I delight with all of my heart in loving on you guys every Sunday morning, every Wednesday. That's my privilege don't misunderstand me, but I can't go to your house and force you to sit down and have a Bible study with me for an hour each morning before you go off to work. There's not enough hours in a week for me to cover that base, but what I can do is I can put myself in a place where I'm in the Word of God that morning, and I'm praying that morning, I'm committing that day into God's hands, and praying for you at the same time that you would do the same. Put on the new garments. Put off the old way of life. Because with that comes anger and frustration, the deeds of the flesh, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and impure thoughts. Can I tell you if you have a problem with lust or drunkenness or pornography, the answer is Jesus Christ. Invest in that relationship because it will pay more dividends than any 12-step program possibly can. It's a spiritual it's a spiritual remedy because you are a spiritual person. Jesus is all you need. If God's not enough for you, you're in touch with the wrong God. My God created the universe. You got a bigger need than that? He is sufficient. All things are possible through God. Scripture tells us that time and time again. And that's, that's, what, that's your takeaway there from verses Verses 20 through 24, we have to put off the old nature. We have been made new in the attitude of the minds, but I need that attitude renewed every day. Every day is a fresh opportunity to surrender, to seek the face of the living God, an opportunity to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, while he's been dealing with broad topics and issues. It seems like now he gets down to the needle point. Here's the practical application. There's a good chance that you will find yourself in the verses that lie between 25 and 32. While nobody on this planet may know your struggles like you do, you may find yourself Guilty of failing to do one of these things, commanded in these following verses. Feel free to grab a highlighter and say, that's my verse. He's talking to me. I wrestle with this issue or that issue. And the Holy Spirit will ever so gently remind you of where you fail and where there is room for improvement. May I draw your attention to verse 25. Therefore, because of who you are in Christ Jesus, because you're a new creation, therefore, you must, not an option, you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Let's put that in our vernacular. Don't lie. Don't deceive. Don't speak about somebody behind their back. It says, speak the truth. And in verse 15, it had told us before, speak the truth in love. Two different ways to say things, isn't there? A harsh and demanding way and a loving and kind and gentle way to say exactly the same thing. Choose to do it God's way. Speak the truth and in love. Here's why. Jesus said, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in your heart? It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, Jesus said, but what comes out of his mouth. You want to be careful what comes out of your mouth. Say only those things that build up and encourage and edify. Verse 26, perhaps this one applies to you. If, in fact, you don't have a problem with lying or deception, maybe verse 26 is yours. Do you struggle with anger? Do you hear how quiet it got? Because a lot of people struggle with this one. It's not something just guys do. I've heard of lots of abusive home situations where they are both engaged in vicious And angry words, that's not born of the Holy Spirit of God and speaks more to where you're at in your consistent daily walk than anything else. Jesus said, what comes out of your mouth is what's in your heart. What's in your heart? What are you putting there? The heart is like a good computer. It only spits out what you've put in. People say, well, that's a stupid computer. "Mm." It's only as stupid as the person at the keyboard. You know, a computer's a dumb animal. It will only do what you tell it to do. It does not have a mind, I mean, this side of AI anyway. God help us the day your computer at your house has AI. (laughs) Artificial intelligence seems to take the place of, what, God-inspired intelligence? Um, There's lots of caveats that come with that, but that's a different sermon for a different time. Verse 26, in your anger do not sin. And, And he's quoting there Psalm 4. And verse 4, it's an Old Testament principle as well as new. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. How do you give the devil a foothold? By not obeying the things that Paul just said. By continuing to lie, or to deceive, or to let anger be manifest in the things that come out of your mouth. Those things give the devil a foothold. You want to ruin it? You want to ruin your life in marriage? Keep doing it, you know, the Satan's way. You want a better marriage, better life? Do it God's way. But the choice is that before us. Christians don't lose their emotions at conversion, but now your emotions should be under the Holy Spirit. That's the difference between a pagan and a not. It's not always a sin to be full of anger. Uh, There are things that anger God. The commercialization of Christianity angers God. You'll remember that Jesus became angry when he drove the money changers out of the temple. The guys in the temple where people came to worship, they were hawking them for money. I got to tell you, I have a problem with stuff with churches that just want to sell you stuff constantly. Oh, buy this and buy that and this is going to cost you money and that's going to... It should not cost you money to grow in Christ. All you need is the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. But when there is this constant emphasis on money in the church, churches with big thermometers, well, we're down here financially, we need to get up here and give, 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 give. Or have you ever been in a church where they pass the offering five or six times? Really? I gave you the only dollar in my wallet the first time. Save the chicken fried buckets for something else because you're trying to bleed a turnip here. Again, the man in the synagogue in the time of Jesus that had a withered hand, he'd been placed there to see whether Jesus would heal on the Sabbath or not. It was a trap. They didn't give a rip about this guy. They wanted to see if Jesus was going to, in their minds, I break the Sabbath by healing or not. It's no breaking of the Sabbath to heal. Jesus asked them the question, you tell me, which is better to do, good or evil on the Sabbath? They all went, "Mm -hmm." Jesus became angry because they didn't give a rip about that guy. You already know Jesus is going to heal him. I already did. He's kind. He's compassionate. But our anger is usually less godly, isn't it? Learn to deal with your anger in a godly way. Don't let it smolder by nursing a grudge. If you have a fight with your spouse, that's not fodder for a conversation five years on down the road. Well, I, you always do this. No, they don't. Why well, remember when? Whoa, whoa, whoa! Aren't you glad God doesn't remember all your sins? Don't let your anger smolder by nursing a grudge. It gives the devil a foothold. Verse twenty-seven tells us. And what does it look like when the devil gets a foothold? It looks like division. It looks like animosity. There's no love. A man and wife can become absolute strangers living under the same roof as a matter of convenience but it be the most ungodly marriage that there is simply because there are so many unresolved issues and everybody's show short-tempered and refusing to forgive. Don't you be that person? Don't you be that person. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, in other words, deal with it. Sometimes that's dealing with the other person, and sometimes it's giving it to God. Gotta let the Holy Spirit deal with you on how best to handle any given situation. Don't give the devil a foothold, verse twenty seven. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. We so easily justify stealing today. Whether it's lying on our tax returns or taking pencils from work, well, they owe me. They don't pay me much anyway. Or as a Christian saying, "Well, everybody does it. Everybody in L.A. is looting all the department stores. Can't be that bad." It's a shame when looting is is still on the books as illegal, but the law is not enforced. There are some stores in California get this that have to lock up their spam. Really? I guess the homeless population is really fond of those pop-top cans of spam and suck the jelly and eat the meat, whatever that meat is. I don't know what it is, but you know we're living in dark times when you got to put spam behind a locked plastic container that something's wrong, but we're not dealing with the issues today. We just lock up our spam. How about we enforce our laws? How about put some of these people in jail? Hmm, what a novel concept. Don't steal and don't justify it. Stop doing it. It's not a, What he's saying there in, in verse 28 is it's not enough to stop stealing. Start doing good. Start doing good. Don't steal but work. There, there's a novel concept. I mean, the homeless people that are out there, you know, try to hit me with a quarter or, or people giving them dollar bills and stuff like that, give them a slip of paper that says Walmart is hiring. I mean, every store I go to in Colorado Springs said, man, we are desperate for people to work. They don't want to work. And yet Paul would write Timothy and say, if you don't work, you don't eat in the church. Church is not honor bound. And most of those are young strapping people that are out there that are panhandling. And panhandling is against the law too, but it doesn't seem to, to stop them. It's not enough to cease from sin. They got to work, and then got to start doing some good, so that they can share with those in need. By the way, what is the homeless community's greatest need? Jesus. You giving them money supports their sinful lifestyle. Bring them a meal. Bring them a Big Mac. If you if you're conscience stricken about that, then do the right thing. But that hasn't helped them long term. It's just giving them their next meal. Teach the, there's an old adage that says you give a, man a, a hungry man a fish and you fed him for a day. You teach that man two fish and you fed him a lifetime. Yeah. Boy, why can't we apply that common sense principle to the homeless community today? If their minds are a wreck, then we have the Pueblo Metal Hospital down there that is designed to deal with those psychiatric issues. But many times, those psychosis that the homeless people have is because of drugs. And if you could get them off of the drugs in a humane way and, and offer them a way to become a productive member of society and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, why would we not do that? I praise God for places in town like the rescue mission that do that exact thing. They bring them into an in-house program. They get them off of the drugs. They give them job leads. They teach them skills. And it's a wonderful thing. But by and large, the world is not pursuing that because they are not pursuing anything of God. Verse 29, as we wrap it up then this morning, do not let, this is so practical, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The things that he has just mentioned, grieve the Spirit of God. Understand, when you sin, God's not mad at you. You break his heart. You grieve. Him, because you've chosen a path that is not of His design. You've chosen to neglect what He has to say to remedy your situation. How it breaks His heart when we refuse to do it His way. Verse 29 is so straightforward. Don't say anything that's corrupt or defiled. You know, the original Greek term had, had to do with using rotten fruit And spoiled meat? Foul language, off-color jokes, profanity, dirty jokes, stories, slander, gossip, unkindness, rudeness, selfishness, cursing are all examples of the things that grieve the Spirit of God. These things should be as repulsive to us as they are to God. Have nothing to do with them. These things should be as repulsive to us as a bowl of rotted fruit, with flies laying maggots in it at your dining room table. These things should putref. These are things that putrefy the soul, and we must have nothing to do with them. But the Christian not only stops saying unwholesome things; he begins saying things that build up, and encourage, and edify. That's what Paul is saying. Put off the old nature, put on the new. Talk about somebody else for a while besides you. Get involved in their interests. Come alongside of them. A good question uh, to ask before you open your mouth is, am I about to say something that builds up, encourages, and edifies? If the answer is no, then shut up. I mean, I'll tell you what, we could have saved half of the marriages in El Paso County if people would just practice this one verse. Stop fighting with each other. Stop tearing each other down. Say only those things that build up and encourage and edify according to their needs. That means you have to put the needs of other people ahead of your own. Hmm. Verse 30, do not... Grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't cause him sorrow or pain. Cause him distress or grief. I don't want to do any of those things that break the heart of the God who sent his son to redeem me from my sins. Verse 31. Get rid. This is on us. God will help us in this process. It's worded in such a way in the original language, in the passive voice, that as you yield, God will do this in you. You just have to put yourself in the presence of God regularly. Get rid of all. How much is all? Yeah. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander along with every form of malice, of evil doing and speaking. Be kind. Here's the new nature. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. How much do you want to forgive others? Well, how much have you been forgiven? You should live a life that is reflective of that. Jesus said, he who is loved much, who has been forgiven much, loves much. Well, that's you and I in a nutshell. Then say only the things that build up. Interesting word there in verse 31 where he says, get rid of all uh, bitterness. <laughs> that's a fascinating word. It's pikria in Greek. It's where we get our word pickled. Pickled. Don't let that bitterness... That mean, angry, bitter spirit that's devoid of peace get the best of you or your situation. What causes bitterness? Usually unforgiveness, hard-heartedness, anger, a failure to receive or to extend God's grace. Hurt, listen carefully to this. Hurt comes from being hurt. Hurt people hurt people. Wouldn't you like to break that cycle? Do you know the number one reason that people become psychology majors in college is so they can find out why they're so screwed up? They're hoping to find some self-help from a pagan world that knows nothing about God or how to fix spiritual problems. But that's the number one reason people head in that direction. Bitterness comes when that hurt is unresolved. And I think that festering anger can come out of unmet Expectations. Well, I expected my spouse to be perfect. Really? Aren't you glad they didn't expect that of you? Bitterness can start out so small, a slight, a really minor offense, and then we dwell on it, we focus on it, we see ourselves as the victim, real or imagined. We turn it over in our minds and repeat the story to other people again and again and again, reinforcing it and embellishing the facts. Remember the old teacher's motto, reinforcement through repetition. That is true of good things. That is true of bad. The more you tell it, the more resentment builds. Slander and gossip. Don't do that. When we can't talk about something without our voices rising in temperature and pitch, bitterness is already set in. I don't know what your last fight with your spouse looked like. But you want to think about these verses in that context. You've got to be able to talk without your voice rising or the temperature in the room rising. It just gives a foothold to the devil and it increases bitterness in all of our relationships. Don't try to justify. That simply reinforces, I think, the depth of the, the bitterness. What should we do? Take it to God. Take it to God. How can we deal with our feelings without them ruling us? I think a good place to start is confess your bitterness, your unforgiveness as sin against God, not the other person. God said, don't do it. We've chosen to do it. We've sinned against God at that point. And I think we, secondly, need to repent of that and ask God's help not to dwell on it. Ask God to forgive you and to forgive them. Focus on faith, not the failure of others. Forgive like God forgives you. Jesus said that in Matthew 6, verse 12. You'll remember this. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not Forgive others their sins. Your Father will not forgive your sins. That is one of the most sobering scriptures in the whole Bible. Again, you act like a Christian because you are a Christian. But you've got to take off the old nature to embrace the new. You've got to take off the old patterns of behavior that were destructive and toxic. And you've got to put on the new person of who you are in Christ Jesus. Ask His Holy Spirit to fill you with His fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And He will. But you have to ask Seek, knock, just like Jesus said. That's on you. I can only do that one hour a week of the 168 that God has given you. What are you doing with the other 167 hours? God, didn't make a spiritual investment. Be kind, compassionate, forgiving. Why? Because I have been crucified with Christ. I have been. That's what Galatians 2.20 says. I think a daily ritual would be a profitable exercise for all of us. Here's what Paul says in writing to the church at Rome in chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers. Well, that's what pretty much Paul said in in verse 17 of Ephesians 4 there. I'm telling you this and insist on it in the Lord. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. God wants to bless you. He wanted, He so much wants to bless you, but you've got to do this his way. It's really so, you can, yeah, you can do this the easy way or you can do this the hard way. You know, I think a person that loves themselves would say, I want to do this God's way. I want to do this God's way. All of us fall short. I believe that God still allows his children to have an old nature even after we've been saved from our sins, to remind us how dependent we are upon him. How absolutely dependent I am to be in his word, to be in prayer, to be walking before him in humility and grace and love. God has wonderful things for you. He wants you to have the best marriage in Colorado Springs. Don't fight him on this. Don't fight him on this. You don't want to become another divorce statistic. You want to give glory and honor and praise to the God who stepped out of eternity to be born a babe in Bethlehem's manger, born to die for you, your sins and my sins. So let's do this thing God's way. Let's make up our minds. I want to live a life that's pleasing to him. Let's stand at close in prayer as the praise band comes up. All of us have need of you. You are the greatest need that we will ever have. You are the one who can dismantle this fleshly tendency. You are the God who has told us that we have to take off the old garments and put on the new ones of righteousness and forgiveness and love. So here and now, Lord, we surrender again. One more time, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices and say, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, if we have found ourselves on the pages of these scriptures this morning, we confess our sins to you, whether it be anger or slander, gossip, stealing, any of the others that were there mentioned, because I don't want to grieve you. With all of my heart, I don't want to grieve you, Heavenly Father. We all of us struggle. But we understand the best way to overcome the old nature is to put on the new, to seek your face. Fill us again, Holy Spirit. Make us a people that are holy in our actions, our speech, our conduct, and our thought life. Help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Remind us, Lord, as you did at the beginning, we are not alone. You will never leave us, never forsake us. You've never left us by ourselves. You're our strength, our shield, our portion, the lover of our soul, the shepherd of his people. We praise you, we bless you, and commit ourselves into your hands in Jesus' name. If there are any of you that would like...